Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, brought to you by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Stan Wallace, and today's topic is thriving as a Christian at a secular university. My guest today is Dr. Christy Moran Kraft, Professor and Interim Department Chair in the College of Education at Kansas State University. For almost 20 years, she has studied issues related to religion and spirituality in higher education, paying particular attention to Christianity in public colleges and universities. She has also expertise with regard to legal issues related to religious expression in public higher education. Christy, welcome to the show. Thank you. You speak often of the marketplace of ideas. What do you mean by that? You know, it's it's not just what I mean by that, but let me share a little bit about what the Supreme Court has, has meant by that over the years. And I find it to be a really interesting and useful metaphor for public higher education institutions. Essentially, the idea of a marketplace of ideas came about um, in a Supreme Court decision in the early 1900s with the idea that uh, there there need to be spaces where there's a robust competition of ideas and and opportunity or places for a variety of ideologies to exist with the understanding or the assumption that the best ones will rise to the surface and be sustained over time. And so I love this, this concept of the marketplace of ideas because, you know, when I think about a farmer's market, for instance, you know, at a farmer's market, you, there's competition. You might have three different stands where they're selling produce and uh, the, the consumers are walking around trying to figure out which produce is the best. Uh, so there's a competition in a mar- in a farmer's market, just like there would be in a marketplace of ideas. So, Frequently, when I talk about the First Amendment to the, of the Constitution, and I talk about higher education, and I talk about religious expression in particular, I draw on this metaphor of marketplace of ideas because it helps set the stage for uh, the benefit of having competing ideologies and being able to sort through those and figure out which we believe to be true. There have been a lot of people over the years that have continued to write about and speak about the fact that a public college or university should be a marketplace of ideas. Now that's been challenged recently a little bit as people are are continuing or starting to talk a lot about how certain ideas are harmful. And so should there really be a free marketplace of ideas? Should should freedom of expression as per the first amendment amendment really exist when when it might result in some hurtful or harm or, or what some people perceive to be harmful ideas. Uh, but my my perspective on this very much resonates with some of the earliest perspectives in that I think the more ideologies that are that are expressed in a given space, the more likely the ones that are true will will rise to the surface. So how should Christians prepare to be a part of that marketplace of ideas? Well, I would say one thing that that I think is important in terms of preparation is just knowing that their voice as Christians is welcome in that marketplace of ideas. I think there's a common misperception that even in the midst of a marketplace of ideas, religious perspectives aren't allowed at a public or university campus. They're not supposed to be shared. Um, And so you'll hear things like the phrase separation of church and state. And I think it's important for people who are starting to think about college or who are already enrolled in college to realize that the way that people talk about separation of church and state is not, is nine times out of 10, not accurate. It's not about keeping religious beliefs out of colleges and universities. It's about making sure that the government doesn't interfere in religious expression. So the first thing I would tell people is just be aware that your voice is part of that marketplace of ideas, that you're allowed to talk about your religious beliefs and perspectives in that marketplace of ideas, even if it's a public college or university setting. I think another thing that I, that I think is, is, is even more important is being grounded in the truth of, of the word and the scriptures, making sure that, that we know what we believe and why we believe it. You know, I, I've often heard that the best way or, or the, the way that bank tellers learn to recognize counterfeit money is by studying the real thing. So the more we study scripture, the more we study the word, the more we'll recognize those counterfeit, those ideas in the marketplace that don't align with biblical truth. And so I would encourage people as they prepare to engage in the marketplace of ideas to, to study the word deeply, 
to, to try to ask themselves, what do I believe about this and why do I believe it? What's the biblical basis for my belief? Um, the, you know, the scriptures say that we're not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And, and that's what this is all about, making sure that our minds are being transformed. I would also suggest, in terms of preparing for the marketplace of ideas, that students listen to Christian thinkers uh, on podcasts, you know, read their, their posts on Twitter, uh, read their blogs. There are a lot of really good Christian thinkers who are grappling with some challenging issues that, that students will face in higher education. And if, if you realize that there's a certain issue that you're facing in college and you're not quite sure how to approach it from a biblical perspective or what the Bible might say about that issue, look up some, some Christian thinkers and, and listen to what they say about those things and, and critically reflect on what they say. I, I mean, it's, it's not about just believing everything they say either. Critically reflect on what some, some Christian thinkers are saying and compare it to the, the word and, and just be prepared to, to know what you believe and to, and to be able to defend that on campus. I think you're right. Those are the things students need to be able to, to access. There are just so many good Christian thinkers. But there's a pushback I've heard using the analogy you did of those who look for counterfeit bills. The argument is that they don't spend their time studying the counterfeits. They spend their time studying the real bills. And because they are experts on what the real thing looks like, they can more quickly spot the counterfeit. How do you respond to that strategy or approach to Christian engagement at a public university? Sure. First of all, I mean, I think when I hear that, and I don't, I don't mean to say this in a negative way, but when I hear that, what I hear is that maybe an underlying fear. And so the first thing I'd say is, is you know, if we're standing on the, in, on the truth, we don't need to be afraid of opposing viewpoints. And, and there's some biblical examples of why that's the case. Uh, but what I have learned from, from experience is the fact that the more I listen to other people's perspectives, the more I'm able to critically reflect on my own and sometimes to refine my own. I mean, I recently attended a, an educational conference where there was a session about being atheist on campus. And so some Christians might think, oh, you better be careful if you go to a session like that. My perspective was, I want to go into the session and hear the thinking, the, the concerns, the frustrations, so that I can figure out how to engage in conversation with people who identify as atheists and who might have the same kinds of concerns and frustrations. It, it didn't change or, or dilute my belief system at all, but it helped me reflect on how I approach interactions with atheist students. It, it helped me think even more clearly about why I believe there is the God as I was hearing the conversations. And so I think it's a matter of realizing that we can learn from people who have different ideologies than we do. We can, call, we can allow those kinds of conversations to help shape us and, and, and prompt us to, to seek more truth. There have been situations where I've heard opposing viewpoints about various challenging issues, and it's caused me to go directly to the Bible and say, what? I need to figure out what I believe about this. There are some scholars in higher ed who use the phrase tolerable discomfort. I think we need a certain level of college students faculty and staff in higher education need to be willing to engage in a little bit of tolerable discomfort. It, it will help shape our own perspectives. And maybe sometimes we're wrong. The Bible is, is absolute truth, but we don't have the full knowledge of everything. And the Bible doesn't clearly describe every detail about living life. A lot of how we live our lives are based on convictions, personal convictions that we have based on our own study of scripture. And you know what? Maybe, maybe we're wrong. And if I'm wrong about something, whether it's a pastor that corrects me, whether it's you, Stan, that corrects me, whether it's an atheist college student that says something that corrects me, if I'm wrong, I want to be able to reflect on that and try to figure out what is true in this situation. So as students head off to college and begin to engage this marketplace of ideas, what are some strategies that can help them do that well, both in class and outside the classroom? There's a lot there, Stan, a lot that I can unpack. So let me, let me take a little bit of the time here and you might, you, we might need to kind of go down some different paths here, but I would say across those contexts, one of the most important things is attitude and attitude of humility. I think in terms of thinking about engaging the marketplace of ideas, similar to what I just, what I recently said about realizing that, that we might not have full grasp of truth on every issue. 
So entering the marketplace of ideas with, a, with humility and with compassion. It's not about trying to win arguments. It's not about uh, trying to prove, prove ourselves or anything. It's about wanting to have a voice in a conversation so that people will consider the perspective that we're bringing to the table. So how do I come with an attitude of humility and compassion and legitimate love and care in a way that they'll hear me? and realize that my heart is in the right place. So that's the first thing I would say. I, I think we sometimes see Christians and others who are very fired up about their perspectives and who allow that to impact their behavior toward others. Maybe they're demeaning or belligerent or things like that. And, and in my opinion, that immediately will just stop the conversation. But if someone knows, you know, this person who's sharing this viewpoint, I've had nothing but positive experiences with this person. This person legitimately cares for me. That opens up their willingness to listen, first of all. So that'd be one thing I'd say. I'd say the other thing is a couple of things. One is I frequently hear college students say, I'm in college to share Christ. I'm, I'm in college to be a missionary. That's why I'm here. I would challenge that a little bit. You're in college to get a degree. If students are not trying to be good students, and do their their best work in school, then they will lose the opportunity. They'll lose the audience that they're seeking to to gain. I, I frequently hear examples, both positive and negative, of college students who either you know really focus on their studies and really take that seriously versus those who don't. And I can guarantee you, even from the level of administrators and faculty, people see that and are less likely to listen to students who do not take school seriously. So my perspective has always been, you're in school to get a degree and you ask the Lord for opportunities along the way for sh- to share your faith. And he will, he will open those doors. There's no doubt. And we need to take advantage of those, but, but let's focus on being good students. Let's focus on abiding by the code of conduct. Let's make sure that our lives are lived in a way that doesn't negate the witness that we're trying to, to communicate and to portray. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. I mean, it, many times it might be that we apologize when we've made a mistake. On, on more than one occasion, I've stood in front of a classroom and have apologized for the way I communicated something. It wasn't hateful or mean, but I still struggled with how it had come out of my mouth. And I think sometimes seeing that's important. So, so part of what I'm talking about right now, Stan, you're hearing is kind of this whole attitude issue and how to approach college before you even start spouting off what we believe to be truth and what we believe to be important, life-changing truth. We have to earn our right to be heard. When I think about the classroom setting, I will tell you one thing. From a faculty member's perspective, there are lots of occasions where I will pose questions to my students in my class, knowing that there are Christian students in my class, opening the door wide open for them to share their perspectives. And they sit quietly at times, not all the time. Sometimes they know good and well that they can speak and they're in a safe place. But one thing I would say is that in classroom discussions, let your voice be heard in conversations, you know, in a loving, compassionate, humble way. If there's a situation being discussed, be part of that voice in that that particular marketplace of ideas. Because what one person might say in class might really challenge another person and or it could encourage another Christian to speak up in class. And then that person speaking up in class can encourage another person to speak up in class. And so look for those opportunities in class settings when discussions occur to be honest about your beliefs and your your faith. And it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to sit down and share the gospel. You know, it's it's about engaging in the topic and presenting what you believe to be the biblical viewpoint on that topic in a way that challenges people to think about it a little bit. That's great. You have articulated that so clearly. But some would argue that the separation of church and state means Christian students should not bring their Christian conviction into the classroom or other discussions on campus. How would you respond to that argument? It depends on the the purpose of the classroom discussion. So there's not one clear, yes, you may, or no, you may not. The answer is it depends. So if there's, um, and and this is what the courts have upheld. I mean, I, I have the I've had the privilege of studying higher ed law from a scholarly perspective. I'm not an attorney and I've read about various court cases. And what it boils down to is if what you share concerning your religious perspectives 
aligns with the purpose of that class session, you have every right to every right to share it. Let me give you some examples. Here's a couple of examples. So I, I teach a class about college student development. How do college students develop during college? Part of that class, we have a section on religious and spiritual identity development. So you better believe when we're talking about how college students develop with regard to religion and spirituality, that it's an appropriate time for students to share their experiences, what they've experienced in the past, what they see on campus. I I teach another course about how to be an administrator in higher education. And we talk about legal issues. We talk about freedom of speech. At that point, people might raise an example that's religious in nature about, is it okay to for me to go out on the quad and start sharing scripture. That's perfectly aligned with the topic of the course. So absolutely. If, however, I'm teaching a physics course, which I did teach physics for a little bit and right after college and thoroughly enjoyed that. But if I'm teaching a physics course and someone's trying to engage in conversation about their religious beliefs, it doesn't fit. And I know that's a strong, that's a strong contrast. But the point is, is this, if it fits the intent of that classroom session, then it's allowed to be discussed for sure. And, and I think even with faculty and staff, many faculty and staff don't realize that, you know, and we're the ones oftentimes that are planning our classes. But if, if the class discussion goes from here to here to here to here, and students are starting to talk about religion and spirituality, and they ask me about my beliefs or my identity, I have every right to answer because that's the way it's gone. And so, so there's a lot of freedom there. I've heard from students sometimes You know, I've written a little bit about my Christian perspective in in a paper for a class, and I feel like I was graded more harshly because of it, or I feel like I was criticized. And on the flip side, I've heard a faculty member came to me one time and said, I can't believe how many of my students are writing about, are citing the Bible in their papers, you know, and she, she wasn't happy about it. But that's a similar kind of idea as what I'm talking about in terms of class discussions. People have asked me, can I write, can I? write about it in papers. The answer is it depends on what the assignment description is. If the assignment says, you know, I want I want you to cite five journal articles from a physics journal, then probably not the best paper to be to be citing it. You know, but if it's a reflection paper, you know, how are you handling COVID? How how what are your thoughts on the racial tensions right now? And if there's no clear cut guideline as to what kinds of sources to cite, it's fair game. So it really just depends on how the instructor has set up the class session, what happens in the class, what the assignments are set up to be like, and just make sure that it's natural, that it doesn't look like it's being forced into an unnatural situation. Let it be a natural part of the marketplace of ideas. That's a very helpful distinction that I think will help students navigate these questions because there are mixed messages being sent. And sometimes it's hard to know quite what you can and can't say. But understanding the legality, as you've laid it out, of engaging in these topics in appropriate ways is very helpful. So as students do so, what might they expect in terms of a response? And I'm sure there's a range of responses, but can you speak a bit to what you've seen in terms of the response that students have received in these contexts? Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're right on. There are a range of responses. Um, what I would say, first of all, is that I've seen far fewer cases of outright, quote unquote, persecution for doing so than, than I think the public or, or some would like to believe. So I want to just clarify that even as I've studied religion and spirituality on a national level, I don't regularly hear of students who are being objectively graded more poorly because of their viewpoint. I don't hear that very often. Now, what, what, what might happen is that you might hear a snide comment every once in a while from a professor or a student. Let me give you an example. Stan, you're going to know this. I I attended a a conference for Christian faculty up at Cedar campus one year and collected some data up there from some of the faculty about how they integrate their faith into their work, how they, how they bring those two things together. And I had received a small grant from our college to be able to, to do that. And part of the expectation with that grant is that I would come back and share my results. And so the College of Education planned a session for me to share my results. I shared them. During the course of the presentation, I, I never identified my own perspective, although I'm guessing a number of people already know, and others who don't know probably would assume that I'm a Christian. But at the very end, I can remember exactly where I was standing when I walked out of the building, out of the room, 
a faculty member looked at me face to face and said, don't you think Christianity is anti-intellectual? You know, and so it's it's those kinds of, and, and he's a nice guy. I have, he's been very supportive of me in my career. I mean, we have, you know, our offices are right down the hall from each other. You know, so there'll be occasional things like that where you might hear something like that and think, oh, okay. So I, I'm hearing some bias here, you know, and I understand and you have the right to your opinion. So I think there's more of that type of thing than outright discrimination. Let me say a couple of other examples. I had a physics teacher, you're hearing my enjoyment of physics, physics professor in college who I absolutely loved and probably why I had an interest in physics. I'm quite certain he was not a Christian just based on what I had read and heard from him. At the same time, he was not outright oppositional. But there were times in our physics class where there were several of us Christians in class that I would frequently wear my one of my university t-shirts. A couple of the others would wear their crew. It was Campus Crusade at the time. They'd wear their Campus Crusade t-shirts to class. And the Lord blessed our work. We, we, were, we were some of the people in the class that were getting some of the best grades. It kind of gets back to what I was talking about before about being good students. And he would tease us occasionally, you know, in class about, okay, all you with the Christian t-shirts, da, 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 you know, but it was teasing and it was legitimately like, I mean, although he recognized that we were Christians, he knew we were doing the best in class. And there was, I, I, it always made everyone laugh. We never felt offended by it. And so part, part of what I want to share with that story is I don't think we should be quick to look for offense. And I think so many people in our culture are quick to point out any little thing that one little phrase it feels offensive. And, and I think Christians are called more often than not to overlook offense. That's one example. Another example, you know, you ask about what, what should students expect. I had a psychology professor in college, huge lecture class. And I do not remember what we were discussing at the time, but he posed the question, is there anyone in here that believes in absolute truth? I mean, huge lecture class. And I can remember kind of raising my hand up a little bit, not real high, but a little bit and looking around and maybe seeing one or two other people that raised their hand, not many. And what, what, what resulted from that was an opportunity to do research with him. I found out he was, a, he's a Christian and that provided a connection for us that I never would have known. And he became my research mentor as an undergrad. I still keep in contact with him today. And so what can, what can Christian students expect? I don't know, but I can tell you that if you're honest and open about your faith, the Lord can provide opportunities that you might not even realize, opportunities for discussion, other opportunities for growth. You might, you know, you might have some people who are biased against you and make that known. And I, and I think we we're, we're to expect a little bit of that as Christians. And so if you go in knowing that you'll have some opposition to your beliefs, I think that's half the battle, knowing it and expecting it, but also thinking about how will I deal with that when it happens? You know, if someone, if someone questions me or says something demeaning, have I thought about how I'm going to respond to that? You know, and I think that's really, really important. So those are a couple of thoughts that I have. That makes a lot of sense. But would you say a little bit more about the issues that are especially challenging for Christian students to engage? There just seem to be some issues that are off limits. And yet Christian students are called to have an influence for Christ and speak truth in love. But do you have any ideas or suggestions about ways to go about doing that that will be most effective? Let me just say that I think some of the most challenging issues that Christian students are going to face are going to happen outside of the classroom environment in colleges and universities. And we don't talk about that much. A lot of times we talk about, tell me about how my professors are going to respond to me. But I can tell you, many students are spending a whole lot more time in the residence halls. They're involved in student organizations. They're involved in student life. And some of what they experience, some of the more challenging situations they experience are going to happen outside of the classroom setting. Let me give you a few examples. There's a lot of diversity and inclusion training going on on university campuses right now. There's some differing opinions about the value of those. I think, I, I think a lot of that's in the news right now. But one particular issue that has been challenging that students have come to me, for, for instance, and ask, how do I deal with this, are the kinds of conversations that deal with religious diversity. So if you're in a diversity training, and, and, and here's the type of questions I get. One is, you know, how can I support religious diversity? You know, that we're, telling, we're being told that we need to value or embrace or support or plan a program 
for all religious perspectives. As a Christian, how do I do that when I don't agree with those perspectives? And there are a couple of things that I tend to think about when I, when I think about this. One is, as Christians, we need to support freedom of religious expression for all. So let's start there. And that's challenging for Christians, students, faculty, staff, the broader society to embrace the idea that we're supposed to, that, that we really should support religious freedom of religious expression for all. And it's challenging because Christians think that if I support freedom of religious expression for all, then that means I'm condoning or supporting a part- these other religious viewpoints that contradict Christianity. But what I've tried to help students understand is, no, you're not, you're not saying you support those individual religions. You're saying you support the right to choose what to believe and the right to hear what the options are. That's a biblical principle. Jesus doesn't want any of us to follow him out of compulsion. It's about a choice. And when students ask me about religious diversity training, and they say, I don't know if I can create a bulletin board that shows all the different religions. I, I don't know that that's appropriate. I try to let them look a little bit more deeply and say, you know, you're not, you're not telling people to become, that they should consider Islam just like they should Christianity. You're, you're supporting the right for people to think critically and to choose about that. So that's one. And then I frequently talk about kind of what we talked about earlier with that, uh, not being afraid. I mean, I think when you look in the scriptures, you know, there are se- several examples and a couple that I've really fallen following on over the years and, and falling back on is the, the example of um, the temple of Dagon, the story in first Samuel, where the Ark of the covenant was, was captured by the Philistines and the Ark of the covenant represented God's presence. It was captured. It was taken into Dagon's temple in a way you, that kind of represents a two competing ideologies, right? Ark of the covenant, Dagon's temple. And in many ways it would look like God, the you know, representation of God was at a disadvantage being in Dagon's temple. But if you read the rest of the story, you can see that Dagon had fallen the first night. Second night, Dagon had fallen and was dismembered. So there's an example of two competing ideologies, one being representing God and and not needing to be afraid. And another example that I frequently think about is Elijah and the prophets of Baal. That's another, what one might say, were two competing religious ideologies, right? And even when Elijah, who was outnumbered and volunteered to put himself at a disadvantage by pouring water all over the altar in the trench, even at a disadvantage when those two competing ideologies were were there, our God rose. So I tell students, don't be concerned about other people's freedom of religious expression. We want to maintain that freedom for ourselves. So let's promote that and just know that God's big enough to handle that. And, and so that's, that, that would be one issue would be religious, kind of religious diversity issues. I think another, and this, this is in the same line of diversity and inclusion training in terms of what students tend to hear and, and get challenged with. The concept of Christian privilege is being talked about a lot in higher education. And most Christian students, when they hear that, feel very uncomfortable. So they'll be, they'll be in a group setting and all of a sudden people will start getting really upset about Christian privilege. Again, it's one of those situations where I've had students come to me and say, what do I say? in these conversations when they're talking about Christian privilege and I'm sitting there as a Christian, I I don't know how to respond. And it is challenging. And it's another one that I've given great thought to. And I don't know if I have all the right answers, nor do I have all the right answers about previous things I've talked about. But, uh, but what I will say is this, the whole idea in these conversations about Christian privilege, it's about power issues. It's about people, certain people being oppressed and that's the framework that's used when we talk about Christian privilege. And so frequently what feeds into these conversations is the idea that people who are not Christians are oppressed in some way, shape, or form. They're not being treated as well in higher education. They don't have the same kind of benefits. They don't have the same power. They don't have the same access to the same kinds of resources. My, my perspective on, on this issue is, and it kind of gets back to the humility piece, First of all, let's acknowledge where there's some truth in that. One of the arguments is so many of the higher ed holidays align so closely with the Christian holidays. So that's Christian privilege. Well, you could say, you're right. I could see how, I could see how that would seem unfair. Let's acknowledge where those things are, first, first and foremost, because I think that, that sets the stage of humility. But then I think in terms of challenging it, part of it might be not only acknowledging where there's truth in it, 
but also challenging, pushing back a little bit and saying, you know, it might be true that there are aspects of Christian privilege, but I also think that there are areas on campus where Christianity is not privileged, you know, where Christian thought probably is not accepted very well. And so trying to provide a bigger perspective for people to, to kind of look at. But I think one of the overarching things that I want to get back to with Christian privilege is let's not become victims. Let's not feel like, okay, they're talking about Christian privilege, so they're targeting me. They're out to get me. Because the people I know who talk about Christian privilege, no, there might be some who, who have that kind of an attitude. Most of the people I know who talk about Christian privilege are not out to get Christians. They're trying to just provide more access to those who are not Christians. And that's the best way they think to reach that. You know, we, we have other ways of trying to think about equity and justice and things like that. But that's the best way they know to, to pursue that is by highlighting Christian privilege. So the, the less we become kind of victimized or feel like we're being targeted, I think the more we're, we're able to have a good conversation about that. But that's one that, that really sets Christian students back. It's like, oh, Christian privilege, I don't know. I'm not sure how to respond. And then they start talking about this. We will return to our discussion in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing to be or currently a university student? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to do just this. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn more and see how you can be a part of equipping Christian professors to show Christ's love to students on a campus near you and worldwide. And now, back to the show. Christy, there are some other issues that are discussed on campus quite a bit that seem to be especially challenging, specifically issues related to social identities like uh, race, uh, gender, sexual orientation. Do you have any suggestions for how Christians can engage in these conversations in helpful and fruitful ways? Well, and I definitely don't have all the answers on that. Otherwise, you know, I'm sure I could make tons of money and go around to all the universities and fix everything where that's concerned. So I don't, but I have some thoughts on it. And I think, you know, one thing that Christian students need to know is that many people will think about their race or their gender or their sexual identity as kind of the core part of their identity. That's the most important thing to them. And for many of those people, if that core part of their identity is challenged or if they perceive it to be challenged, they feel like their whole personhood is being questioned. They feel like they're not even being seen. To, to some of these people, it's not just an ideological difference. It's a, hey, if you're, if you're challenging or if you have a different perspective about race or, class or gender or sexual orientation, that means you, you don't even believe I'm a person or you're hateful or you're phobic. And so part of the challenge is knowing that going into this, knowing that these conversations about social identities are going to hit at the very core of how people think about themselves, which takes it a level deeper than just talking about different ideas. I mean, we think about it as different perspectives. I do. Other people think about it as an attack on their personhood. I say that to say entering these conversations takes a lot of, it takes a lot of um, humility and compassion, first and foremost, because that's the case. I will say, I have tried to lovingly challenge some people in some of these conversations in, in similar ways to what I'm talking about right now. I think there's a lot of terminology that gets used that just causes more division, such as being phobic. Um, so if someone um, disagrees with Islam, so they're um, Islamophobic, or you know, if someone holds to the perspective heterosexual identities is being the, the, the identity that, that God has ordained or that leads to human flourishing, then that person's homophobic. And so part of what I've tried to challenge in a loving, loving way is our use of terminology. Just because someone disagrees even fundamentally on what leads to human flourishing with regard to gender or sex, sexual orientation or what have you, doesn't mean that they're afraid of that person or that they hate that person. Sometimes the way we engage in the marketplace of ideas is by asking questions. I mean, Jesus asked, it all, asked all sorts of questions. Maybe we'll have more questions than answers. So maybe one of the questions is, is there a way to talk about these issues without feeling like 
a person's being labeled as hateful or phobic just because they have a disagreement about what leads to human flourishing. You know, another another piece of that is this idea of human flourishing. I, I think, you know, when I think about gender identity or sexual identity, so much of the conversation is, you know, you need to be free to be who you think you are and who, who you feel like you are in those areas. And that's going to lead to the best life for you, a flourishing life. But then if you ha- you'll have other people who will say, we don't think that's the best way to lead to a, a flourishing life. You know, so instead of framing these conversations as hateful and phobic, can we start framing them as there's different perspectives on what truly leads to human flourishing and we all want the best for each other, but there's different perspectives on that. But I, I will say quite frankly to Christian students, the way things are right now, if you hold to biblical principles with regard to specifically gender and sexual identity, and there are people who argue what those what biblical principles are in relation to those, but you likely will be deemed hateful closed-minded, intolerant. And, and I would just encourage you to, again, not, not fight back, not become victimized. Love as, you know, as Jesus would. Pray for those around you. Ask for wisdom for how to engage in those conversations in a loving yet truthful way. Ask for opportunities to do that. And, and I think the Lord will come through. One of my regular prayers is for wisdom. And it's, Lord, give me the words to say when I am put on the spot. If I'm in front of a classroom and someone puts me on the spot about a hot topic, I need your words to come through my mouth. And and I would encourage Christian students to pray the same way. What's the reality that students can expect when they show up on campus? Will most of their professors be antagonistic to their faith, or will they only run into a few here and there that might oppose the Christian worldview from your perspective and experience? I'm glad you asked that because it gave a chance to kind of clarify a little bit more from what I've read nationally, no research is perfect research and there are exceptions and that kind of thing. But from what I've studied nationally, I think you're going to find that even a lot of professors who are, who are opposed to Christianity recognize the value of a marketplace of ideas and recognize the opportunity to have those ideas be a part of that, even if they disagree with it. You're going to, you're going to get the extreme professors. I hear about one or two here at my university, on a, the same one or two on a regular basis, but, but that's all that I hear about. But I think what you will find nationally, again, this is, this is national data, it's not just where I'm located, is that some of the people who might be the most opposed to the Christian perspective, to a biblical perspective or Christianity, are the administrators who work at colleges and universities who are not professors in the classrooms. They're, they're called student affairs administrators. Some researchers call them the hidden educators because they have a profound influence on students. So you might say, who are these people? Well, let me tell you who they are. They could be your hall director. They could be the director of residence life. They could be your academic advisor. They could be someone in the career center. They could be someone who oversees all the student organizations on campus. These are people who have master's degrees and doctorate and or doctorates in higher ed administration. They've studied higher education. They've been trained, for lack of a better word, to be administrators outside of the classroom to make sure the universities function. And research shows that, and this is about political leanings more than religious, though sometimes there's overlap, but research shows that, that they're far more liberal politically and usually religiously as professors are. And so students, I believe, from my experience, are far more likely to encounter resistance from those types of administrators on campus than they are from professors. And that's what I hear about on, from, from people all the time. It's coming from their supervisor out, outside of the classroom, more than inside of the classroom, things that are going on in other spaces on campus. And the research is, is pretty clear. Nine times out of 10, when a student comes to me to talk about challenges on campus, it's not about a professor. It's about a student affairs administrator. And why do you think that is? Um, partly because student affairs administrators, many of them don't realize the value of a marketplace of ideas, uh, don't realize the importance of variety of perspectives being shared. And, and I would, I would err on the side of assuming the best of these individuals. So many of them are my friends and colleagues. And I think many of them believe that, that what they're pursuing and how they're pursuing it is the best way to pursue it. Uh, that, that it's about helping people know how to think about these issues and that the way they think about these issues is really the best way to think about these issues. And so it just continues to get passed down. I teach these people. That's my whole, that's what I do is I teach future student affairs administrators. 
and I see the readings, I see the textbooks that are coming out, I see what's getting published. It's very one-sided, but it's continuing to be promoted because that's the, the viewpoint that many student affairs administrators believe leads to, to human flourishing. They think Christianity is closed-minded and intolerant. You know, how can you say that your religion is the only right religion? And who are you to try to convince me? You shouldn't even be trying to persuade me. You're trying to, you're, you're implying that my mind's not as good. That's very troublesome to student affairs administrators. Whereas many faculty could see the value of persuasion or many faculty set up debates in class intentionally. But many student affairs administrators just don't see the value in that. And they, instead, they, they, they believe that the viewpoint that they espouse is the best and the right one, and it needs to be passed along. So how might you suggest students engage student affairs personnel over these areas of disagreement? I've seen some students do a really good job of that. Let me give you an example. Again, it goes back to being humble and compassionate and how you do it. But in our housing unit, our residence life area, the resident assistants were given the opportunity to provide feedback about their diversity and inclusion training. And many of the Christian resident assistants sent feedback that was, and I saw some of it, it was sent to me, and I'll tell you about how that happened, but very honest feedback about how in the midst of all these conversations about diversity and inclusion, they felt like Christianity was being excluded, which defeats the purpose of diversity and inclusion. And so they gave some very specific examples. And that led to, again, so many of these folks here on campus are good friends and colleagues of mine. That led to one of those contacting me because they know I'm a Christian, A, and they know B, that I study these issues. And they said, what do we do with this? How do we respond? Can you come talk to the professional staff, not the RAs, but the professional staff about how we might think about responding to this feedback? I share that story to say that those RAs were brave enough to very honestly and humbly and compassionately express their viewpoint when given the opportunity to do so about how, you know, we're saying we're preaching diversity and inclusion, but it doesn't feel very inclusive to our perspective. You know, they, they provided that opportunity. And I would say just like, like in a classroom, when there is an opportunity to have discussions, and those happen in student affairs spaces, let your voice be known and, and challenge, you know, it, it in general, challenge perspectives in, in kind of a, a general way, but be, be in good standing with those people to be able to have a voice, you know, be, be, be that RA that's doing a, an excellent job, because then you're more likely to be heard. You know, if you're meeting with your academic advisor and something happens, something said, be that student, not necessarily that you're getting all A's, but you're a good student and you're trying your best. Be a student that, that's respected so that your voice can be heard. And, and I think approaching a lot of this with questions really is the best way to go rather than accusations. You know, the way that the RAs presented it, it was very humble. Here's some examples. We don't understand how this fits in with this idea of diversity and inclusion. So maybe you ask a question, someone says something and, and, and you realize it's, it's rubbing you the wrong way. Maybe you ask how they've come to that conclusion or, or have, they, have they talked to a Christian? Did, would they like to hear a different perspective on that? You'd love to offer a different perspective. Are they willing to hear that? Or have they thought about this or that? So I think when we, when we respond with questions, sometimes more than statements and definitely more than accusations, we go a long way. That certainly is the posture we should all take when engaging challenging issues in the public square. I appreciate those comments. I want to switch gears and ask a little bit about fellowship on campus. How do students go about finding a good community of other believers as well as a good church when they show up on campus? That's that's a really good question. I do I do want to reiterate the importance of a good Christian fellowship. It was a game changer for me as a college student, an absolute game changer because I came in after having been raised in a Christian home, but in going to church three times a week as a child, but not remembering ever really hearing the message of the gospel. And so it was, it was because of my involvement in a Christian organization that that, that changed. I think, you know, what I've, what I told my niece who just started college and, and what I told her parents and others is that one of the first steps, if you're, if it's a new institution, a new place, you don't know anyone in the area, get online. There's a lot online right now. Look up Christian organizations. Most campuses have, a student organization webpage of some sort that will list all the, they usually classify them as religious organizations. And you can find a variety of them there. Reach out to someone 
there's usually contact person listed, you know, so go to a website, identify some possible organizations, give them a try, you know, see if it's a good community for you. You know, if a student's going to college in the same area where they were raised, they likely already have people who know here at K-State, people in the church that I attend and such immediate contacts. If someone were to come to me, I could say, okay, go talk to Robbie. Robbie works with Christian Challenge. Ask for those contacts from people in the churches, but use the websites. I mean, when I came to K-State, it's been 15 years ago, I came as a professor, but I wanted to be involved and, and be supportive of a Christian organization on campus. That was part of what I felt was my calling as a professor. And so I got online even 15 years ago and found the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship chapter here at K-State and found out who the staff worker was and sent him an email before I even did my interview. I asked him a little bit about the campus, asked him a little bit about the climate, the religious climate on campus, asked him a little bit about his university chapter and what was going on with that. And, and I mean, to have made those connections, one connection leads to another, to another, to another. So get online and use those resources. And how do students go about finding professors like you? Say a freshman who's new to the university and maybe is intimidated by people with PhDs. How does he or she meet and get to know brothers and sisters in the faith who are on faculty? In similar ways as what I discussed before, if, if those students will contact some of the Christian organizations on campus, those Christian organizations know a lot of the Christian faculty. Some of those Christian faculty are serving as advisors for them. Others, they just know. And so get online and ask someone, go to a Christian organization meeting and ask, can you refer me to a Christian faculty member? Who's someone I can talk to? Who's a professor that you know is a Christian that would be supportive? That kind of information gets shared pretty quickly. It wouldn't be too long for a student to be on campus and to be at least connected with a Christian organization before that person would be able to identify at least a couple of Christian professors on that campus too, because there's the Christian professors know the campus Christian organization staff. We work together. We, we, we pray for each other. And so just as someone might come to me as a professor and ask about a Christian organization, go to a Christian organization, ask about Christian professors, and you'll find us. Well, and you'd mentioned earlier the local church that you're in is a place that you might meet students. They might meet you. How, how do students go about finding a good church in town where they might meet other Christian professors, where they'll get good teaching, where they'll be with other like-minded believers trying to navigate these university years? Sure. And maybe I'm giving too much power to these organizations, but I'd say go to the Christian campus organizations on, on campus. A lot of the students who are involved in those campus Christian organizations know where the good churches are to get plugged in, know where the churches are where other Christian college students are attending, know where the churches are where other Christian, where the Christian faculty and staff are attending. There's so many resources that come out of those organizations in addition to the spiritual formation that occurs. There's so many connections too. That's how many people in the organization I was involved in found a church was they got involved in the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship group that I was a part of. And they asked the rest of us, where do you go to church? I think it's just such a great resource. I'm sure there are other ways, Stan, but I, I can't reiterate enough the value of making a connection with a Christian organization for, for all of these reasons. Well, that was certainly my experience in college. I know many, many others as well. So it's a, it's a good word. There are times, and you mentioned this uh, may be the exception, but uh, times students will have antagonistic professors. So how can students flourish in that environment? In some cases, honestly, it becomes a matter of just getting through it. I'll just be honest with you. I mean, there are a couple of faculty members on our campus who have the reputation of what you're describing. And it becomes a matter of, you know what, you're required to take the class. No, this is going to happen and you just press through because the faculty member might not be open. And, and so pressing through while also praying for the heart of the professor, the biggest impact you might have is praying for that professor during the course of the semester that you're in, in her class. But there are some situations where you just have to get through it. If you feel like you're being discriminated against, if you're being graded more harshly, if you're experiencing outright opposition, I encourage students to go to the Office of Student Life, and, and, and that's a way to resolve problems and conflict, and I think there's, there's a reason for that. But I think some things are going to be hard, and sometimes you just have to go through the hard thing. But I think if you know it's going to be hard, you surround yourself with Christian brothers and sisters who are praying for you. They know it's hard. You're going in. You're doing your best as a student. You're praying for your professor. You're not trying to look for ways that you're victimized, but if something happens, you reach out to the resources on campus and you trust the Lord in the situation. 
sometimes we don't, we can't avoid those things. You know, we just have to face them head on and realize it's going to be a hard semester. Sure. It's just a part of life. Would you say more though about the resources that are available to students and also to their parents and even perhaps resources pastors might want to know about to serve students well? Sure. I would say the primary resource on on any campus would be the Office of Student Life. The name is something like the Office of Student Life, Dean of Students. It goes by a couple different names. They're usually the first stop, the first place to go if a student has a concern about a situation. They will advocate and help figure out how to resolve conflict. And so if there's a situation where a professor is really blatantly discriminating or what have you, and the student goes to the Office of Student Life, they're going to know how to handle that. They're going to know exactly what other resources need to be brought in. They're going to be an advocate. They're going to be a support for that student. And then the student's not going to feel like he or she's alone in the matter. So starting with the Office of Student Life, the Dean of Students Office is always a really good place. If a person doesn't have enough institutional knowledge to know that, a student should be able to go to a trusted faculty member, another one, who should then refer them to that office. There's a lot of support for students in in situations like this that many students either don't know about or are cautious to to move ahead in. I think in many ways we need to be quick to overlook offense, but if there's outright discrimination, that's unjust and that needs to be resolved. So use those processes that are there. Use those offices that are there to assist. Thanks so much for that helpful advice. What else do you want to make sure our listeners understand? First thing I want them to know is that many Christian college students flourish in public colleges and universities. Flourish. So don't believe the idea that they're going to go to college and lose their faith. Some do walk away from it. I'm not denying that. But there are many who flourish. The organizations, Christian organizations on our campus, are the largest, most well-attended organizations on campus. And the campus administration knows that. They've recognized that. They see that. They know that that the Christian organizations have helped students develop character in their mind. And if you look at the grade point averages on many campuses, ours included, students involved in Christian campus organizations relative to the rest of the student body, they're typically higher. And so one thing I want to just say is assume the best, assume that this can be a place of great flourishing for your college student. Assume that, you know, but it's about finding those connections, getting involved in the groups, figuring out how to engage in the marketplace of ideas like I've talked about in a way where you expect some resistance at times, but you also try to let your voice be heard appropriately. The other thing I want to say that I think is so important, and it kind of relates to this, is this is a hard balance to find. And as a student, I didn't find it very well. And that is, it's so important for students to be involved in in Christian organizations, but don't be so involved that you're not involved in in spaces where there's marketplace of idea kind of opportunities. Here's an example. For several years, our campus had a committee. It was called the President's Committee on Religious and Spiritual Diversity. For a few years, I had the opportunity to chair that committee. The whole idea behind that committee was to bring people of a wide variety of religious and spiritual perspectives to the same table to try to talk about how to make sure that everyone of any religious or spiritual identity flourishes on campus. I couldn't get a Christian student to be involved. Out of all of the Christian students on this campus, hundreds of Christian students on this, thousands of Christian students on this campus, I sent out messages to campus ministers. I couldn't get a Christian student to be involved, and I so badly wanted a Christian student on that committee. And so try to find that balance of being a part of that Christian organization, but having time and space to be involved in these other arenas where those Christian voices need to be heard is something that that I would talk to a student about trying to do, trying to find that balance. Like I said, I didn't do a great job of it myself. I was a resident assistant, so that was a space. But beyond that, I didn't do a great job. You know, attend the diversity and inclusion discussions. Don't just assume that, okay, they're going to say things I disagree with. I'm going to feel marginalized and excluded. So I'm not even going to go. Attend those. Pray for wisdom. Pray that the Lord gives you words to speak and step out of that Christian organization for an hour or two to get into that space and to have a voice. Because I, I do hear nationally particularly among people who are trying to plan interfaith events. They call them interfaith events where they bring people together from different religions to to do something, to do some good for the community. 
I hear nationally that people are frustrated with specifically people who identify as evangelical Christians because they're not involved in these efforts. So I encourage that involvement, not, not to be afraid, but to get out into those spaces and be around other people. Absolutely. I've noticed in my years around the university that so often that's driven by a almost a Christ against culture model of engagement that our job is to be wholly other, separate from the culture and make little commando raids into the university culture to share the gospel perhaps, but not really to be engaged in the broader life of the university. Is that one of the factors that you think is is driving this as well? Or has that just been my unique experience? I think that's one of them. I think another factor is some of the language that's used in some of the interfaith initiatives. Um, And I shared this with, I don't know if you've heard of Interfaith Youth Corps, but someone from Interfaith Youth Corps contacted me and asked for my perspective. And, hey, Christy, how do we get more evangelical Christian students involved? And part of it's the language. I mean, if, if they're presenting some of these situations in a way that makes Christian students feel like they're condoning the other religious beliefs, they're not going to get their participation. But if it's framed in a way, and if it's legitimately a situation of come, you can hold on to your beliefs. We're not trying to tell you that that you need to believe that all these beliefs are equal. That's different. And so I, I talked with one person one time about this idea of, are we telling students in these events that we want them to respect other religions? If so, are they hearing agree with instead of respect? How do we clarify what the underlying goal and motives are? And I think there's just a lot of Christian students that I've spoken with are very cautious and hesitant about the interfaith kinds of events because they feel like the underlying motive is to get them to believe that any religion's good. They're all equal, take your pick, that kind of thing. And that's not going to fly. I see. That makes sense. Well, Christy, this has been a really interesting conversation. Where else might people go for more information beyond the resources you've already mentioned? Uh, Definitely the Christian Campus Ministries. And there's a lot of websites related to those. So not only the one on your local campus, but look at some of the national websites. Just recently, I pulled information off of some of the Christian organization websites about how they think about student leadership development. And I was amazed at how much information I could simply find on the website connect with Christian professors who can share more resources with you. You know, that's kind of real vague, real vague answers. But I think it's about making those connections with people who are Christians on campus and asking them for their resources, where they go, what they listen to. I do think you'll hear a lot of those people say that they listen to some of the great Christian thinkers, like you said, J.P. Moreland. I mean, a lot of what I've read is from the late Ravi Zacharias uh, has been extremely helpful for me. Tim Keller. There, there are certain things that I disagree with that some some people say, but I like to listen to the different perspectives and try to formulate my own. So look for those resources online. Look for those through the, the Christian organizations. Look at some of the local churches are doing great work in the area of tackling some of these challenging issues that then a Christian student can listen to and think about What's this mean for me in my, you know, at my college or at my university? How do I take this and walk it out in a university setting? So, so much of what I tell, you know, what I've started doing over the years is as I read scripture, I mean, I, you know, I'm always asking to be open to correction from the word. I want wisdom. I want knowledge. I want to be trans my mind to be renewed and transformed. But I still always ask the question when I read scripture, what's this tell me about how to, how to approach my work as a professor? So for college students, ask yourself, you know, we always talk about application of scripture. I mean, we usually keep it very general. How does this apply to your life? Well, ask yourself specifically, what should I take from this passage of scripture? What does it tell me about being a college student? Right, because that gets right to the core of one's calling as a student called to engage these ideas and how does scripture speak to that? Well, Christy, thanks so much for being on the show, sharing your wisdom, your experiences, so many great examples of what college students can do both to flourish and engage in redemptive ways, as well as I think you've shared some good examples of how not to do that and some warnings of ways to not flourish during the university years. I appreciate your service to the kingdom and your your, uh, wisdom and your humility and your time today to share your thoughts with us. Well, thank you. It's been, it's been a pleasure. I enjoy talking about these things. So you didn't have to twist my arm to get me to do so. So thank you very much. 
That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education helps you or someone you love flourish in both heart and mind during the university years. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith. And you can follow me on Twitter at Stan W. Wallace. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to learn how you can be a part of creating lasting change in higher education worldwide. And if you haven't done so already, I would greatly appreciate your review of the show at Apple Podcast or Stitcher. It helps a lot. And finally, I encourage you to pass this show on to your friends or others you think would enjoy hearing our conversation. So until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.